The Eagle and Child, Episode 44. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and welcome to the 2018 Christmas special. In the Santa's workshop, which is this podcast, I'm joined, as ever, by my helpful elf, Matt. Well, I'm not sure how helpful I'm going to be on this episode, being a novice to the Narnia series. No, I think you're going to bring something new and different to this, because I was raised on these books, so they're, they're, they're part of my blood. So I think it'll actually be really interesting to see what it's like as someone who's read a good deal of Lewis, but coming to his children's books for the first time. That is a good point. I didn't think of that. I do bring, having read a ton of his theology books and never any of his fantasy books, to be able to do this, I think is going to be fascinating. I was able to, I mean, I've already read it now as I talk about this. And so it was interesting to see all of his themes for mere Christianity just plagued throughout this book. So what's the quote of the week? As you can imagine, it's from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've come at last, said he. She has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Asin is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. It's Father Christmas. That's perfect for the time period. That's why I chose it. Great job. And what are we drinking today? Which of the Glenmorangies? So we're drinking the one, I don't even know if I should be pronouncing this because I'm going to say it wrong, but the Nectar d'Or. And I did it just because of that name. Sounds very fancy. Well, it sounds like the nectar of the gods. I think it means nectar of gold. I, I think you're right, but doesn't it sound like the nectars of God? Nectar d'or. Well, let's see if it tastes like that. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, it sure does smell like it. I don't know if it's the nectars of God, but it's lifting me to a heavenly place. <laughs> That's smooth. Again, there's just little burn with it. I love Glamorangy. Definitely a really good one to go to. There's another one in this pack that I'm really looking forward to getting to, but uh, this one is also just delicious. You were going to have to put these on hold, by the way. What? <laughs> well, I traveled back to Michigan for a few weeks over to Christmas time, and I can't take I mean, unless I can find it there in a small town, I can't take it on an airplane. No. <laughs> yeah. That's so sad. Uh, I'll search there to see if they have the variety pack, but it's all in Michigan. This isn't New York City. <laughs> Fine. My family's big into fine wines. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy a wine while you enjoy the scotch. But listeners, 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 we've been dying to... This is our first episode. We get to fully reveal that we have officially launched a website. <sighs> Woo! It's exciting. <laughs> it, we, we've been ready to do it for a few weeks. And then David told me he wanted to do it until Christmas. And I just bit my tongue and let it go. But I'm like, that is... I can't wait any longer. I mean, we started this video series, which was ultimately going to, why we built the website to house both of these. We started that in March, right? Yep. I mean, it's been a long journey. So when he told me after he was ready, he wanted to wait for Christmas. I'm like, my goodness. I'm like the kid that can't do delayed gratification. This stuff is ready. Let's go. Yeah. Teaching you patience. <laughs> yeah, I did. But you caved and did it halfway in between. I compromised. I didn't cave. <laughs> <laughs> but we want to encourage everyone. 
as much as it's great to go check out the website, what's really helpful to us is if all you subscribers on the podcast become YouTube subscribers. Wait, wait, Matt, you talk about a website. What's the address? Ah, you're right. They just, especially since we've rebranded ourselves, we decided to go with the, the brand of Pints with Jack instead of the Ego and Child. And so the website is pintswithjack.com. And when you go to the website and you check it out, we put a form up there with three questions. We want to encourage all of the listeners, all of you guys to give us feedback. What do you love about it? Because we want to do more of that. But what don't you like? And please don't be shy. We take no offense to it. Our job is we, we know we're doing a far from perfect job going through all of this and we want to be the best we can. What do you want? What do you want more of? What do you like? What do you dislike? Let us know. Yes. If you find Matt really annoying, just say it. And it's on the podcast page of the website on the bottom. So go to podcast, go to the bottom, three simple questions. We make it really easy. Click submit. We would love that. So go to the YouTube channel, click subscribe. We need you to do that because we want to gain as much momentum as possible. And it's Christmas. So give the free gift to all of your friends by sharing it on social media. That's exactly right. And give us the gift of a subscribe button and like it. We want to get some thumbs up on those videos. David and I are human, are human too, and we like affirmation. I'm kind of scared for this video series, to be honest. So the podcast, there's no way... I mean, people could put negative reviews, I guess, on iTunes. But that's, that's the there, liking on... There was one person who gave us four stars out of five. Okay, that's not a negative. That's, that's just I'm still, I'm still smarting from that. <laughs> but but it, the YouTube like and dislike is a much easier mechanism. So you could see a lot more feedback coming in from that. And I look at Bishop Barron's videos and still see like 5% dislikes. And I'm like, man, if we get that, I'm going to be hurt by that. (laughs) (laughs) It'll make us tough. Yeah, well, you're right. But we probably should get into this episode now. Yes. Uh, So a while ago, uh, when it was first discovered that Matt hadn't really read the Chronicles of Narnia, we received a message from a... Was that news, by the way, to anyone? Yes. I mean, I haven't seen movies. I haven't... Did you expect me to have read these? Uh, Yes. Yes. And many people (laughs) did. And... Patience, one of our listeners, she contacted us about a month ago and she said, Matt needs serious help. I was cringing (laughs) throughout the who inspired Puddle Glum and what is the silver chair bits. This was the episode where I was talking about my visit to the kilns. She said, how it hurt my heart. I don't understand. (laughs) How could he have only read C.S. Lewis's scholarly works? I think a temporary revoking of his C.S. Lewis fan card Maybe in order until he gets his act together. Oh, which seems hard. That's brutal. Yet all of my mind focuses on. Oh, I appreciate that she says. How can he only read his scholarly works? (laughs) But that that uh, David always sends me emails. Clearly, he didn't want to send me that one. No, I wanted to reveal that one on air. Just (laughs) that's brutal. I also didn't want you to know how much you hurt many of our listeners. Patience. You should just look at this as such an opportunity for growth for Matt. What a gift it is that someone else gets to experience the true joy of C.S. Lewis still. And we see you growing on air over the course of these episodes. This is wonderful. I sure hope so. And so what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to discuss The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I assigned it to Matt as reading. Now, we're not going to do what other podcasts have done. The Lamppost listener, they do a great job of going through chapter by chapter, blow by blow. We're not going to do that. We're just going to do one episode now that they've finished their series on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we're going to specifically look at where do we see Lewisian theology in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
we've gone through mere Christianity very slowly. Where do we see the themes and ideas that Lewis communicates there in his didactic work? Where do we see those in narrative form, in his story, in his fantasy? Lewis's books here, they're often referred to as Christian allegory, but Lewis strenuously denied it. Instead, he called it an imaginative supposal. <laughs> okay, that doesn't roll off the tongue nearly as easy as allegory does. True, but there is a difference. And particularly since we're going to be going into the great divorce, it's an important distinction to make because there he also called that an imaginative supposal, kind of like a thought experiment. This is what he wrote in a letter to Mrs. Hook. He said, If Aslan represented the immaterial deity, God, he would be an allegorical figure. In reality, however, he is an invention giving an imaginary answer to the question, what might Christ become like if there were a world like Narnia and he chose to be incarnate and die and rise again in that world as he actually has done in ours? This is not allegory at all. So in Paralendra, that's one of his space trilogy books, this also works out a supposition. Allegory and such supposals differ because they mix the real and unreal in different ways. That's the first time I'm hearing that. And that makes sense. With an allegory, you're somewhat committing yourself to this is what I almost believe it's like, versus this gives a huge amount of discretion, creative discretion, for him to add aspects to the story that really aren't part of the Christian, but it, it, it fills it out. Uh, and to add details while still carrying a lot of the themes that he wants to, the connections between Christianity and this world. And Lewis also, when he spoke about his fantasy works, he described them as a means to sneak past the watchful dragons. He said that when skeptics read works of Christian literature, they're on guard. But when someone reads a story, they let their guard down. So this is a means through which he can teach Christian truth allowing people to see something of the truth and the beauty, as you so often like to say, the truth and beauty of Christianity, but under different terms, so people can experience it afresh. He's trying to give you a Christian vision of things. He's trying to draw the reader into viewing things, viewing reality from a Christian point of view. It's a good way of describing it. So now let's see how he does that. Let's enter this imaginative supposo. And it begins with Lucy. Lucy enters the wardrobe and she... F oh, before we go any further, obviously, spoiler warning, if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I mean, Matt, who wouldn't have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? <laughs> uh, we're going to basically be telling all of the story. So if you don't want to have the story ruined, pause the podcast, read the book. It should only take you a few hours, and then you can come back and listen to the rest of it. But let's begin. Lucy enters the wardrobe and she finds herself in Narnia. And she meets Mr. Tumnus. Did anything there jump out at you? Yes, uh, but I can't take credit for it. So I was talking to a friend uh, last weekend and telling him that we were going to be doing this. And he, he's a very intelligent person. Went to Duke, he's a brilliant guy. He finds these connections. And he's very spiritual and Christian. And he loves Lewis and he goes, notice that. He starts going on, first of all, he starts going on just this whole ramp, like this whole monologue of these five, ten different things from Narnia that he loves. But he goes, notice right from the beginning, who's the first of the four children enter the wardrobe? Lucy, the most innocent, the most childlike, the most open to receiving it. And he goes, notice how Jesus talks about to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like a child or a little one. I'm like, huh, I wouldn't have seen that, actually. Wouldn't have put that together. And also, not only that, the entire story, it's about 
little children changing the course of events in this entire world. And it reminds me of in Mere Christianity where Lewis talks about the invasion. He talks about Christ invading our world, but as a little child, as a little baby. Oh, that is true. I didn't think of that. That's a good point. Now, when Lucy actually goes back to Tumnus's house, well, his cave, the theme that really surrounded that section for me was faith and forgiveness. Because you get to see how Lucy has faith in Mr. Tumnus. She believes that he won't actually go through with what he had originally planned, which was to kidnap her. And do you remember when we read the chapter on forgiveness, where at the end of the chapter it asked the question, what then is the difference between Christianity and the rest of the world? And Lewis said that Christians always hope that the person that they're forgiving will somehow be better, that they can someday be cured. And Lucy has that perspective when it comes to Mr. Tumnus. She knows he's a nice fawn and believes that he couldn't possibly do what he'd originally set out to do. I don't know if this is in mere Christianity at all. I want to say it might be. But that idea that when you love someone for what they can be, they'll rise up to that. Uh, it's amazing when you, that might just be a psychological thing that I've learned throughout life from reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, but it's a great principle. Fulton Sheen has said before, if you want an unlovable person to be lovable, you have to love them. And that concept somewhat here, I mean, Mr. Tumnus was not like an unlovable person, but he was about to backstab her and betray her. But he, he was very moved by her love and her kindness and compassion. He couldn't do it anymore. He rose up to be the person that she thought he was. I think that's a really cool image. And then the story goes on. She goes back through the wardrobe and, and returns to our world. And after teasing Lucy mercilessly, Edmund then finds himself in Narnia where he meets the White Witch. And this encounter, it kind of reminds me of the Screwtape Letters because you see how Edmund gets manipulated by the witch, this satanic figure. Yeah, first of all, can you blame him? I feel for Edmund. I mean... He was a jerk to her beforehand, but in terms of his getting, his terms of his getting duped, someone offers you Turkish delight that tastes incredible. That's like someone teasing you and dangling at a young age with a with success or fame. It's like, what do you? What would you have done in those positions? Well, I was taught by my parents never to talk to strangers and not accept candy from them, and he did both. (laughs) That's true. As I read about the witch. I'm reminded of the section in Mere Christianity where Lewis says, where he reminds us that Satan is a fallen angel. He says that the better stuff is made of, the cleverer and stronger it is, the better it'll be if it goes right, but then the worse it'll be if it goes wrong. So she is this very powerful creature, but she's been twisted, she's been bent, and she's going to be using all of her power for evil. We should have brought that up in our... Our recap episode, that's such a beautiful point, that idea that the better you are, the worse you can be, because I think it's, it, it provides a, a reverse that's beautiful. Some of the worst people you should look at and try to will their good because they could become incredible people for the kingdom of God. People who are so broken and fallen in a part of the world, a lot of times they have a passion and energy that's just being applied in the wrong way. And when you can help them and it can be rechanneled, oh, what a gift. We should have talked about that. Yeah, you can be transformed from a Saul of Tarsus to a St. Paul apostle to the Gentiles. He's the best example, killer of Christians to one of the greatest Christians. Now, whenever I'm talking about the Chronicles of Narnia with friends, the subject of Turkish delight always comes up. 
Apparently on our Instagram feed too. Yes, on our Instagram feed you can see some of the Turkish delight that I brought back from England for our C.S. Lewis book club here in San Diego. Someone didn't like the recipe of it. I'm like, that looks actually pretty good. (laughs) A lot of people, when they taste Turkish delight for the first time, particularly if it's not the really good Turkish delight, they are very disappointed because they read Lewis's description. I think it's going to be this wonderful thing. And then they taste it. It's like, "Mm, that's not that great. Yeah, there's no way I taste this because I have the absolute highest of expectations. (laughs) Well, see, the funny thing is, is that's actually really appropriate because what is sin? Sin is the thing that promises something much better than it actually delivers. (laughs) That's a great point. We are always left disappointed. And the Turkish delight has a really important role in Edmund's fall. What's particularly interesting is that the kind of sin that he was committing translates over time. So it first of all starts off as gluttony, you know, a very fleshly sin. But that is the means through which he's led to greater sins, in particular, pride. We read in Mere Christianity about the cardinal virtues, and the important one here is temperance, having the right amount. But Lewis describes this Turkish delight as the kind of food that you keep wanting to eat. It keeps leaving you disappointed and wanting more. And here we see that principle that we just talked about of what evil is. Gluttony is a twisting of hunger. It's twisting of hunger so that it doesn't meet its natural good end. I, I can't help but making a, a bit of a, a plug with one of the most transformative understandings or learnings that I've come across in the last few years. And it's, it's very related to this, but it's the idea of that dopamine loop. And that really comes with vices and sins. So sins of lust, sins of greed, over shopping, spending, all those, you get like a dopamine hit from stuff. And we've learned this now about the psycho- psychological part of humans. And it feels great temporarily, but then the, the, the effect of it is diminished. So you need more and more and more. And you're like, why can't I get that original feeling? Well, because you've had too much of it, which is very related to this Turkish delight. And now when I, whenever I find myself giving into some novelties or buying something or going to a really fancy dinner, I, you want more and more and more. It's like, just appreciate it for the bit it is here, but don't, don't, don't get overly attached to this because it's going to, if you went to a fancy restaurant every single night, you wouldn't enjoy it anymore. And also don't think that it's trivial. Again, we come back to this idea of heavenly and hellish creatures, that there are no small decisions. Remember when we did the other chapter on morality, where Lewis describes it as a fleet, and you've got the interior morality, the inner workings of the ship, the exterior morality, the relationship between the different ships, and then the goal, basically making sure that you're going in the right direction. Well, in, in Edmund, we see what happens. He's messed up inside, and that can't help but make its way to the exterior. He's sliding ever more into evil and with a compound interest. He starts off just wanting to eat as much Turkish delight as he possibly could. What's wrong with that? Well, he ends up betraying his family. Uh Uh-huh. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And Turkish delight, apparently. And Turkish delight, (laughs) yes. It's always so subtle. Which is also why Lewis said, going back to mere Christianity, now he sees why people would take both you would read in Christianity this immense amount of mercy, but yet this extreme emphasis still on little sins. And he couldn't reconcile those two. But it made sense when he understood this heavenly hellish creature. The very little things you do. So if David, you screw up just slightly and I'm your friend. Yes, I want to tell you it's okay. Grace and mercy, you're forgiven. 
But I also want to say, David, don't do it again, though, because that could be the beginning of a slippery slope. And so you still want to stay vigilant on the little stuff because of that principle. Because it also works well in the other direction. Yes. Goodness also compounds with interest. So hopefully we have a good rate of return over the next few years. So Edmund then returns to our world and he betrays Lucy in the meanest way possible. Although I've got to say, I never quite understood what his end game was, why he thought denying Narnia was a good thing to do. Because if he wants his Turkish delight, he's got to get everyone back there. I mean, I just came from that and I just think to myself, how would I, what? He cared more about being right, his pride, than sharing the most mind-blowing thing in your life. Mm-hmm. If I walked through a wardrobe and went to a whole other world and I just was in a quarrel with my sister and just disagreed with her and then I came out of this world and she was right, that wouldn't even cross my mind of, well, I don't want her to be right, so I'm going to pretend I didn't go in the most amazing world and the experience in the world. I'd tell the whole world about it in a heartbeat. Well, I think it actually speaks to what we've just said about how evil compounds and how we train ourselves. I think for Edmund, it was probably just instinct took over. Yeah. He had the opportunity to tease his sister and to look grown up in front of the others. And he took it and actually didn't really think about what he actually should do if he wanted to actually meet his own goals. If he actually wanted to become a prince in Narnia, if he actually wanted, if he actually wanted those rooms full of Turkish delight, he should have said, yes, I went there. It was great. Come on, guys, let's go. I have a place we might want to go to. You just described the cost of pride. Everything he gave up to be right. Because what is pride? It's essentially competitive. Yes. Because it would have required him to say that Lucy was right. I was wrong. So Peter and Susan are concerned about Lucy. And so then they go to the professor because they're afraid she might be losing her mind. And the professor surprises them because he actually takes Lucy seriously. And what Lewis does is he presents his trilemma. If you remember in Mere Christianity, he says that we can't say that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic. He must therefore be Lord. And the professor does the same thing with Lucy. He says, well, we know she's not mad. We know she tells the truth. So the most probable explanation is that she did find a country in the wardrobe. I love how he says logic. Why don't people teach logic in school anymore? (laughs) Like, it's that simple. What's the most probable explanation? Let's not overthink this. It's one of my favorite lines whenever whenever I'm disagreeing with someone. What do they teach them in these schools? (laughs) (laughs) But But it is amazing how reading it in this light almost made it more palpable. It made it more real because here you're, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, she's done absolutely nothing to tell us she's a madman. She's done nothing. And then when you've read Mere Christianity and you apply it to that dilemma, the trilemma, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus hasn't given me any reason to think he's a madman. I mean, he's an incredible human being. Doesn't seem like a liar to me. And he claimed to be God. So it's most probable that he was. So... Fortunately, then all of the children arrive in Narnia. And this is actually a difference between the book and the movie. I much prefer Peter in the book. Because in the book, he is very quick to ask for forgiveness. When he realizes that Lucy was right. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie. And so I don't remember the Peter of the movie. But I really liked the Peter of the book. Yeah, in in the movie, I I just, yeah, I just don't like him quite so much. I'm going to rewatch the movie 
potentially tonight after this, actually, recording. Sunday evening. I like to watch the movie on Sunday evening. It was funny, in the book club this weekend, we're working through Surprised by Joy, and two of the children who join our group were there, and I started showing them the BBC version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's the days before really good computer graphics. The children just thought it was the most (laughs) hilarious thing ever. I will not be watching that one tonight. (laughs) I can't handle bad TV. No, it's really good. It's actually much more faithful to the book. But It is funny you say that. I was shocked with reading the book after seeing the movie. The book progresses through like a few key events really fast. Mm -hmm. I don't fully remember the movie, so I'm going to go back and obviously watch it here potentially tonight. But I'm curious if they added some stuff or at least developed parts of it more because this book was like, boom, somehow read a battle already and I've only been reading this book for two hours. Yes. No, I think they really tried to make it the next Lord of the Rings. If you want that really pulled apart and explained, go to narniaweb.com and listen to the Talking Beast podcast because they talk about that. So returning to the story, they go to Mr. Tumnus's cave. They find that he's been arrested by the secret police and then they meet the beavers. I love the beavers. One of my favorite parts was Peter asked, well, how do we actually know they're going to follow the beavers? How do we know if they're nice or not? And Lucy's first response is, well, I think it's a nice beaver. <laughs> and then Edmund goes, yes, but how do we know? And it's in italics. And then Susan's response is brilliant. Shan't we have, ri- have to risk it? I mean, it's no good just standing here. And I feel I want some dinner. I thought about that, whether Lewis meant it this way or not, with just the Christian faith itself. Like, how do we know it's true? Well, I'm not sure if we know. We can look at the weight of the evidence. We can believe. But some people, because they don't know, quote unquote, like 100% certainty, are unwilling to jump in. And so they're on the fringes. They're exploring it. It's intriguing. They're sitting on the outside. I like how Susan just says, but Shane, we have to risk it. You know, I kind of want some dinner, and I think of dinner being like the joy that could come from diving into Christianity. It's like, just dive in, and because at least it claims, and you and I claim this all the time, and Lewis does, to offer complete joy. The risk-reward, I'm in the investment space, and the risk doesn't seem like a huge downside, and the reward seems pretty incredible. I think it also relates to Lewis's understanding of faith, the fact that it's, uh, that it's not blind faith, but it's trust. You look at the weight of the evidence, and then you have to make a decision. So go in the direction that the evidence points, even if you can't have perfect 100% assurance. Yes. If you have to make a choice, which you ultimately do, go in the direction of the evidence and then just trust. It's basically Pascal's wager. You have to make a decision. And it's sad because we live in a world today where I think many people just don't make the decision. And, and I think of Sheldon Valkin, an incredible book. There's a book that I recommend as much as The Great Divorce, and it's A Severe Mercy. And they knew Lewis. They were atheists. Eventually, they became Christian. The wife did first. And the husband's great moment of truth was he, he, he described this imagery that he's, he's on this, this, call it this island type thing, this cliff ledge, and he can't quite make it to Christianity. Like there's still a jump, a leap of faith he has to do. He hasn't closed the gap to fully believe in Christianity. And he was trying to continuously close that gap, but then he also realized he looked backwards. And the jump back to atheism was way farther than the jump to Christianity. And so eventually he realized, I got to make a jump, and one way is a lot shorter than the other way. Returning to the beavers, Lewis says that Edmund doesn't really enjoy the beavers' food. But if you've read that section of the book, as he's describing the preparation for the meal, 
your mouth will start watering. It sounds delicious. It reminds me of when Lewis says that virtue prepares us to be able to enjoy heaven. It creates within us a capacity to enjoy it. And in the same way, vice hurts our ability to enjoy heaven. Vice hurts our ability to really appreciate things that are truly good. And Edmund, he has started heading down this path, eating the Turkish delight, preparing to betray his family. And it has hurt his ability to be able to enjoy things that are truly good. I think of uh, the Eucharist. This is every it's the whole time you're describing that. Uh, I like to go to daily mass, I like to receive the Eucharist. And I think of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I'd go to mass, I never appreciated it. I never enjoyed it. I never felt it. Even today, when I go in these times when I'm, I'm living, call it far from God, you know, the way that my choices I'm making in my life aren't of the heavenly creature-ish type. And I go to mass, I don't, I miss out on so much. And when I'm, when I'm coming close to God, when I'm in his presence, when I'm spending time in prayer uh, and preparing my heart to receive it and I go to it, there are times when I get chills. And there are times, there's been a few times where I've weeped because I, I feel like I'm in a place where I can receive this. And I realize the magnitude of the gift that this is. And I realize the graces that are being bestowed from nothing of, of my own doing, nothing of my merits. And that to me is, is somewhat what you were describing here in a, in a small way that I experience daily. The same grace is there regardless, but your disposition will allow you to see it. Yes, and to receive it. And allow it to bear fruit. Yes, that, that is so key. There's one other thing that I want to point out about Edmund's disposition here. When they start talking about Aslan, Edmund doesn't actually want it to be true. After he abandons them at the Beaver's Dam and goes to the White Witch's house and sees a stone lion, he naturally assumes that this is Aslan. He wants that to be true. And in Mere Christianity, in the chapter on faith, Lewis says that he can guarantee what's going to happen if somebody becomes a Christian. He says there will come a point when it would be very convenient to that person for Christianity not to be true. And it's the same thing with Edmund here. He is already starting to turn to the White Witch's side, and he doesn't want Aslan to be true. He doesn't want him to be all that the beavers are describing him to be. And speaking of Aslan, my favorite description of him is He's not a tame lion. Don't they start with saying good? Or what do they say? Tame? Safe. Safe. He's not safe? safe. He's not safe. I love that. But he's good. But that idea of him not being a tame lion, about him being kind of dangerous, I think that's the God that we see in book one of mere Christianity when we speak about this moral law. Lewis says that, if God really is good, then he must hate an awful lot of the things that we do. And he has that line, we have cause to be afraid. So when the children realize that Edmund has betrayed them, they flee the dam and they rush to the stone table to meet Aslan. And one little point there, when Aslan shows Peter Care Paravel, he points him towards his destiny, telling him that he is one day going to be the high king over all of Narnia, and it's a small illusion, but it reminded me on Lewis's chapter on hope. That we need to know that we are called to something greater. Peter at the moment is just this small little schoolboy who's never fought a battle in his life. And Aslan is pointing forward to a time when he's going to be high king. You're describing the importance of the why. 
So there's moments where you need to remind yourself of that why, that hope, because that's the only thing that's going to get you through. Because it's not always sunshine and rainbows. I mean, there's going to be some suffering and some struggles and some temptations, but you need that why. It's a small point from that scene, but again, it reminded me of mere Christianity. When Susan is being attacked by Morgrim, she blows her horn, which she received from Father Christmas, and it's already alluded to that this is going to be some kind of magical horn. But who comes to her rescue? It's her brother. It's actually not Aslan. It's not miraculous. And it put me in mind of book four, where Lewis says that some people might say that I've never had the sense of being helped by an invisible Christ, but I have been helped by other human beings. And he compares it to a woman who, during the war, said she wouldn't mind if there's bread rationing because they only ate toast. He says, no bread, there will be no toast. In the same way, if there's no help from Christ, there will be no help from other human beings. And just in that little scene of Susan blowing her horn, and as I'm saying, it is, it's your sister's horn, and Peter rushes to help her, you see Aslan working through Peter in order to save Susan. And one other thing, actually, when Peter is fighting Morgrim, it reminded me of when Lewis says, it's amazing what you can do when you have to. When a question in an exam is compulsory and not optional, you can surprise yourself. And in the same way, Peter is this scared little child. And this is actually one thing I do think they do really well in the recent movie, the weird way Peter is holding his sword, scared out of his wits as he's about to fight Morgrim. But he does defeat him because he has no choice. You want to take the island? Burn the boat. And then in the story, it switches back to Edmund, and he's traveling with the White Witch on the sleigh, and they come across uh, a group of animals who are eating a Christmas lunch that was given to them by Father Christmas. And thus far in the book, we've seen the descent of Edmund, see him get more and more twisted. But this is the turning point in his story. And Lewis actually even spells it out. When those animals are turned to stone, Lewis says that this is the first time that Edmund felt sorry for someone else other than himself. He looked outside of himself. This was where he started to change from the trajectory of a hellish creature back towards a heavenly creature. He chose Turkish Delight. We've already talked about that being the sin and that when you have it, you want more and more of it and it leaves you dissatisfied. I look at it as this offering of the world. Every day the world offers you an experience. It tells you, you know what, if you choose me, if you choose success, if you choose lust, if you choose greed, if you choose materialism, you'll be happy and joyful. And for a bit, you, you take it. And then you're like, not quite there yet, but I just need more. There becomes a point in most people's journey, if they really follow that path, where it lets them down. And they have this realization that this wasn't what I expected. Because Edmund's first experience, I would have, it, it was incredible. But it was eventually that he realizes, wow, this was not what I was expecting. Anyway, Edmund is rescued. Then the witch comes and meets Aslan and they make this deal. And it results in Aslan being killed on the stone table. Obviously, although it's not allegory, the allusions to the crucifixion are very clear here. Although, obviously, there are also differences. Aslan comes back after one day rather than three, etc. But one thing that I couldn't help but think about as I was reading about Aslan going towards the stone table, he's sad, he's mournful, but he does it anyway. And that reminded me of Lewis's second kind of faith, faith that is about sticking to something, even though the emotions assault you. 
Aslan is clearly sorrowful and experiencing emotions about what he is about to endure, but he goes through it anyway. One thing that's worth noting is Lewis's description of what Aslan goes through here is much closer to a substitution on the atonement kind of model of the atonement rather than his perfect penitent, which he describes in Mere Christianity. But I did want to pick your brain about this deep magic that Aslan talks about. What did you make of that? It's interesting you asked that because when I read it, I, I took a step back and I tried to ask myself, what's, what's this referring to? Because he doesn't actually expand on it a ton. He, he alludes to different ideas, but it, and so I was like, all right, so what's the initial magic, the deep, and then the deeper? And so I got this sense that the deep magic was what you very much you see in the Old Testament in this idea that we would think of this eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this idea that you do a sin, you need to atone for it. You've done something wrong, you need to, to, to make reprimands for it. Which I would say points to book one of mere Christianity, the moral law. That there is a standard of right and wrong, and quite honestly, we fall short of that. Yes. Oh, that's a very good way. I didn't actually think of that, connecting that to, to the book one. And so that's what you get with this sense of the deep magic. But then he mentions this deeper magic that precedes time and is from the very, I don't know, if, before the very beginning of time is the right way of phrasing it. From eternity, when we spoke about the Trinity, it's this eternal communion of love before that law, so to speak, becomes inaugurated with creation. Preceding that is a communion of love. And it's interesting because this, is, is, this thought just came to me, but earlier I made the comment kind of passively, but we were talking about how that if you love an unlovable person, they become lovable, which is a unique principle. I know this isn't related to deeper magic isn't sorry it is related it's not directly to deeper magic but when you were describing this love this, that preceded time between the trinity that's the love that compels us it's this idea that we're these broken kind of unlovable creatures that are falling far short of this moral law and yet the way that god compels us is with this immense act of love through the gift of his son this perfect penitent dying on the cross it's not what you would think as Lewis says, it's not what I'd expect. I would come up with a simpler religion. <laughs> yes. But as he says, we're dealing with reality, and reality <laughs> is often unexpected. And as we're about to realize in the great divorce, reality is also sometimes hard to accept. I love here, too, when we're talking about Aslan killed on the stone table, all of the analogies that you see here, if that's the right word, the parallels. I think here we can use that. Sure. We see Jesus, like Jesus, I, I love that you mentioned that Aslan was sorrowful, and I think of the agony in the garden. Like Jesus, I, I, the picture that he paints of him being mocked as he walks to the table. Like Jesus, who appeared to the faithful women followers first. That's what you see with Aslan. I just love those, those parallels that bring the story of the resurrection to life, the death and resurrection. It recasts it, because the danger of hearing the gospel story throughout all of our years is that we can grow numb to it. And one of the things that Lewis can do through his fantasy work is to represent it to us, represent it to our senses in a way that seems unfamiliar and that allows us to encounter it anew. Oh, it was just like last night. I went to the most amazing symphony show in my life here in New York called Handel's Messiah. 
It was like two and a half hours long, and it was bringing the Old Testament and New Testament verses from Isaiah to Revelation to the Gospel of John to Matthew to the Psalms. And holy cow, it was beautiful. Two and a half hours of being immersed in this experience, the most angelic opera singers of all ranges. And you hear them reading and talking about rejoice, behold the Lord. And is it, is it saying this? You're just, you're hearing it in a totally different light when it's being sung. Oh, you're exactly right. It's one of the purposes of art, to communicate it. Yes. A little fun fact about me, I've sung the soprano, alto, and bass versions of Handel's Messiah. Unfortunately, my voice broke too quickly. I never got a chance to sing the tenor. The tenor guy was incredible. I, I now I've never heard of a counter tenor before. Really high voice. If you wouldn't have known it was a man, you would have thought it was a, a woman singing. Mm-hmm. I didn't like his part as much. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of an acquired taste. I, I thought that. I know it's not. He was doing an incredible job. Probably he's probably one of the best that you can imagine here in New York performing in a Lincoln Center. But I, I just wasn't acquired to it. I'm like, I don't even know if he's really supposed to be considered great or not because I'm <laughs> not loving the sound. Well, returning to the land of Narnia, after his resurrection, Aslan goes with the girls to the witch's house. And here we go into the material that I talked about on The Lamp Post Listener a couple of months ago, when they invited me on as a guest. Here we see parallels with Pentecost. Aslan is breathing on these statues, and they're coming to life. We see a parallel with the harrowing of Hades, when Christ descended to the dead and drew them up into heaven. And of course, in Lewisian terms, this is the Tin Soldiers and the Good Infection. Mm, so good. And they do nothing either. I love that. They do nothing. Well, yes and no. They do nothing to receive the life, but all of the characters are invited to participate. After Aslan has breathed on the statues in the courtyard, what does he do? He says, go into the house, find the other statues. They are called into his mission in the same way that Jesus gives us life and calls us into his mission. One of the things I love pointing out at the beginning of the book of Acts is Luke says, in my earlier book, the Gospel of Luke, he says, I wrote about what Jesus began to say and do. The implication is in his sequel in Acts of the Apostles, Luke is going to tell us what Jesus continued to say and do, but no longer Jesus in his incarnated body, but Jesus in his body, the church, because the church takes up the mantle of the master. It's the same mission. It's the same things happening, but now through humans who have caught this good infection, who have received this divine life, and are now going to be passing it on to everyone else. After they've liberated all of the people from the witch's castle, they then go and join the battle. And this reminded me of Lewis's comments about surrender, about giving everything, Because the battle isn't going well when they arrive. Peter and Edmund, they're losing. But they realize that they have no choice. There is an evil here that must be fought, that can't be compromised with. And they therefore have to give everything. And in Edmund, it reminded me of what Lewis says about faith and works. Edmund has been redeemed by Aslan. And it was a gift. But part of the response to that is to then join the battle to go and fight, to go and fight against the evil that enslaved him. And of course, the beautiful conclusion of all of this is who wins the battle? It's Aslan. When Aslan turns up, the tide turns and the good Narnians win. And once the battle has been won, there's the coronation. 
And here we see an initial conclusion to the journey that the children have been on over the course of this book. A transformation from children into kings and queens. And we actually see the other end of this transition in the final chapter when they're grown up. And how else could I think of anything but theosis? These sons of Adam have now become sons of God. The transformation that begins from the moment that they enter Narnia reaches its completion. How did you feel then after that they, they go back to, to reality and they're, they're kids again? I, I was reading that and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's a letdown. I'm trying to think about that. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm thinking, man, this really describes the classic experience of going on a spiritual retreat where you get this spiritual high and then you've got to go back to your daily job. And, and, and it's, the key is maintaining that inner transformation that happened, allowing you to be a part of the world, but in a different way. You know, they go back and as much as they're still children, there is something different about them. I mean, the, the, in, in, in the professor describes that at the end too. And here, I actually love the BBC version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just for one thing, when Peter comes back through the wardrobe, he's rubbing his chin because his beard has disappeared. <laughs> but you mentioned the conversation with the professor at the end, and I mentioned this in the episode that we actually recorded recently. The professor assures them that they'll find their way back to Narnia, and when you read later books, you find out why he knows this. But he speaks about being able to recognize those other people who have also been to Narnia. And at the end of book four of Mere Christianity, Lewis describes how saints recognize each other across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even creeds. When you encounter one, they'll feel different. There'll be something about them. that They'll seem to have a lot of time. They'll seem to be very present. And I think that's, that's, that's what we're called to is as we go on that retreat, we find this transformation in us that happens. And we've got to do stuff constantly throughout our daily life to maintain that. But something different about us, the way we treat someone that disrespects us, the way that we were present with someone that we get no benefit out of, the way that we talk, the way that we use our time, there'll be something different. And you'll recognize someone else who's maybe, I don't want to say on the same level because that sounds terrible, <laughs> but you know what I mean. You recognize somebody who's also been to Narnia. That's exactly right. And one thing that I think is worth sharing before we wrap up this comes from one of C.S. Lewis's letters to children. A mother had written to Lewis, and her son was concerned that he loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. This is what Lewis said. Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing. For the things that he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks that he's loving Aslan, He's really loving Jesus, and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. If I were Lawrence, I'd say in my prayers something like this. Dear God, if the things I've been thinking and feeling about those books are things you don't like and are bad for me, please take away those feelings and thoughts. But if they're not bad, please stop me from worrying about them. And if Mr. Lewis has worried any other children by his books or done them any harm, then please forgive him and help him to never do it again. Oh, I love it. If there's anything that you think we've missed, if there are parts of Lewis's thought or particularly mere Christianity that you see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, shoot us a message, tweet us, send us a message on Instagram, and we'll probably talk about it. But if you want to give us a great Christmas present, remember, leave an iTunes review, 
share an episode on social media, and particularly the videos, which you can now get at which website, Matt? Pintswithjack.com. I feel like a promotional salesperson. <laughs> and also feel free to take a selfie with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or with The Great Divorce and send it to us on Instagram and Twitter. And as a reminder, go to the website and give us some feedback. We've created a forum. We really would love your input. So next week, we'll actually repost last year's Christmas episode. So you have something to listen to over Christmas. And if you're a new listener, you'll hopefully see how much we've improved, or at least our audio quality has improved. That'll be fun. And it'll also give us a week off to relax. <laughs> give David a week off. He, he needs it. It may be winter, but it will soon be Christmas. Further up. And further in. And cheers to the end of season one. Cheers. Cheers.